This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. Well, good morning, Whitworth, and I certainly want to welcome you this morning. This is indeed the day the Lord has made, and what a beautiful day we have to celebrate the beginning of Whitworth's 127th year of service to the Academy and to Christ Church. So thank you so much for being here today. I too want to recognize our newest students. If you are a new student, a freshman or transfer student, a new graduate student, or a new continuing study student, would you please rise and let us welcome you to your new home? Thank you. And if you're a returning student, you don't have to be here this morning. We want to celebrate you. If you're a returning student of any kind, please stand and let us welcome you back home. Yeah. Seated before you are many members of Whitworth's faculty and staff, uh, regaled in various colors, representing their alma maters and degrees. Students, what a privilege you have to to learn at the feet um, of these wonderful faculty and staff members. Students, would you join me in thanking our wonderful faculty and staff? And lastly, Whitworth University benefits tremendously from a very talented group of leaders called our Board of Trustees. And this morning we have two members of our Board of Trustees, Ken Roberts and Eric Peterson, who are here representing the entire board. But Eric and Ken are here to support us this morning. Would you join me in thanking Eric and Ken for their service? Thank you. And lastly, uh, what fun it is to see uh, former President Bill Robinson and Bonnie in the front row. Welcome to you all as well. Thank you. <clears throat> well, my title and scripture reference for this address were due to Gretchen Cleveland several weeks ago. Design and printing deadlines and, well, you know, Gretchen's desire to keep the trains running on time caused me to have to think about this speech much earlier than I would have liked. I mean, come on, I had a few weeks left in summer vacation before I had to start thinking about opening convocation. Who's with me on that one? Yeah. Now, earlier in the summer, I was reacquainted with the passage in Colossians that Brianna read so well for us this morning. There was something about Paul's writing and something about Eugene Peterson's translation that struck a chord for me when I read it. There was something there about new identities. And knowing that I would be speaking to a crowd this morning made up largely of Whitworth's newest students and a few new employees, I thought that I could certainly turn that into something. Add in a few timely words about the university's new brand identity and logo, and sprinkle in some encouragement from Paul's exhortation to seek out our true identities in Christ. Well, these were the makings of a respectable convocation speech if not forgettable. <clears throat> so that's what I turned into Gretchen. I'd let it simmer for a while. I'd let it work itself out in my subconscious. 
Well, as a surprise to me, I began to turn my attention toward this address and I departed from that very reasonable, if not predictable, outline. The themes of identity sat with me in very unexpected ways as summer waned. And while I want to encourage all of you new Whitworthians in your recently donned identities as college students, and I certainly want to welcome and affirm Whitworth's newest employees, this summer's contentious national dialogue, propelled in part by our upcoming general election, compels me to take a slightly different tack than I was planning to take some weeks ago. To be sure, Paul's admonitions to us to find our identities in Christ will make an important appearance later. So just hang with me. A recent New York Times column named the year 2015 as, quote, the year we Americans obsessed about identity, end quote. Indeed, it seems that conversations about personal identity are pervasive in our culture, and they so often serve as the springboard for so many of the issues and challenges that our society faces today. The arguments tend to follow a familiar outline, and it looks something like this. A person or group of people claim to be part of an identifiable and often excluded or marginalized or abused group. That claim then serves to animate a recitation of individual or shared experiences or stories, often negative ones, that draw attention to a set of individual or collective needs. Those expressed needs often include a greater appreciation for and recognition of the defined group in question and proposed remedies for how that group can be more justly served within our society. On the receiving end of those making this claim are often other individuals or groups of people who by intention or by circumstance fall outside the defining boundaries of the identity group in question. These people often have markedly different lived experiences, and they draw from those experiences to inform very different perspectives on the world. It is from this, this group of outsiders that those who seek greater appreciation or remedy ask for collective conscience, allied partnership, gracious solidarity, or at a minimum, standards of conduct that would allow the identity group in question to live lives characterized by safety, equality, and inclusion, some of the basic ingredients to human flourishing. These seemingly simple requests drive our national dialogue. They tickle our ears as we veg in front of the TV. They serve as measuring sticks for us versus them presidential politics. And they ultimately inform policy discussions and choices. The conversations that I've just described are once familiar to all of us. We observe them on the news. We have them within our own families. We actively or passively witness them on Facebook memes. They are the conversation, it seems, that either pull us together 
or sadly and way too often tear us apart as a community and as a nation. The identities in question, the myriad characteristics and shared experiences that define the two groups in my very simple description, well, they're many and complex, and it seems to me that they are growing in number. But I think it's instructive that I don't have to mention them by name. For all of us to locate ourselves within the dialogues that I've just described. That's how familiar this ever-present model of communication is for us today. And frankly, those particular identities, they're not really that central to the remarks that I want to make this morning. We all have them in our minds. Now, other than hinting so far that these identity discussions that are so pervasive in our society can be either healthy and productive or divisive and harmful, I've tried so far to keep my simple illustration value neutral. That is, even though I've asserted that identity conversations are ubiquitous in our national dialogue, I've not generalized them as either bad or good because, of course, we know that they can be both. Imagine, imagine, if you will, a conversation that follows the model that I've just set forth. A person or a group of people make a claim of injustice or mistreatment based solely and discriminately upon their identified identity, their defined identity. These claims, let's assume, are real and painful and pervasive. Perhaps they're even historically rooted, and therefore the grievances put forth span centuries, even millennia, and they accumulate to staggering proportions. Change is needed. People are hurting. The time is now. That plea for help can be met in a number of ways. The hearer can respond with grace and compassion. The recipient of this difficult message can search for a posture of understanding. Empathetic ears can attempt to relate, even if not fully, to the other's pain and suffering. And even if feelings of ineptitude or powerlessness fill those who hear the cries for help, hearers who have different lived experiences, different stories, and who can honestly never really relate can still commit to continuing dialogue. They can still commit to seeking understanding and to coming alongside. Friends, there's no guilt in hearing the needs of others. There's no shame in coming alongside those who hurt. There's no compromise in admitting that things need to change and that change can start with us. And there's no ulterior motive in acknowledging that the issues are complex and that thoughtful and committed people might disagree on how best to proceed. But so often, so often we let ourselves get in the way of real ministry and service in these situations. Rather than grace and selflessness and empathy and understanding, our responses are often shaped by guilt and pride, and shame, and self-protection. These cries for help are hard for us to hear, aren't they? 
Perhaps because we question their very validity. Perhaps it's the case that our own purported or that the purported experiences of others do not align with our own experiences, causing our own skepticism. Perhaps, and again, as no fault of our own, we've not to this point in our lives even been aware of a particular circumstance or need. Or maybe we have real and valid ideological or theological disagreements that make it more difficult for us to see the humanity in others because we're afraid of seeding too much or losing the argument in this zero-sum game we've constructed. There's too much to stay, at stake, we say to ourselves. It's easier to withdraw, or worse, we find ourselves acting out of fear and anger. Let's turn the tables. Perhaps you are among those who feel marginalized. You want your identities to be respected. You want your experiences to be acknowledged and validated. And you want change. Not wanting to minimize the real and present injustices in the world perpetrated on those with little power or privilege, I do wonder, I do wonder if the intended impact of those who seek change isn't also shaped by things selfless or selfish. Now, as a parenthetical note, all of my self-preservation bells and whistles are sounding right now in my head. If you didn't just catch it, I'm about to attempt to give counsel to you in the room who are among those who feel downtrodden, abused, and invisible. This is hard because I don't want my words to be interpreted or misinterpreted, nor do I want to be seen as just another powerful person telling others how they should feel or how they should act or what they should do. That's not my intent. But I want to acknowledge that I am perhaps the most privileged person in the room. I'm white, well-educated, wealthy, able-bodied, sound-minded, heterosexual male living in the United States in the year 2016. On top of that, I have the best job in the world. In a world of identity distinctions, I'm at the top of the pyramid. You see my predicament. But as someone who sees himself very often as an ally to those who hold a very different position in society than I do, and as someone who is personally compelled to work for justice and change in our communities and in our institutions, and as someone who often sees his role as Whitworth's president to serve as a positive and convening force that pulls people together for healthy dialogue and action, I'm persuaded to commend to those of you who are very different from me and who face very different challenges than I face to also humbly check your motives and intentions as you dialogue and work for good. Questions like these might shape your important roles in these conversations. Are my actions and words rooted in a desire to speak truth with humility and grace? Do I have a posture that invites others in, even if they don't always get it, rather than to make easy distinctions that push people away from my cause? 
Am I just as guilty of stereotyping and misrepresenting people who don't share my experience? In what ways can I channel my understandable anger and disgust into constructive dialogue that moves the issue forward? And have I done all that I can do to create allies and to thank them for their solidarity as imperfect as that solidarity can sometimes be? Friends, our identities do matter. They are the ways we self-describe and self-disclose. Our experiences matter. Our stories have significance. Let's not get caught up in that distorted, counterfactual, and ultimately unproductive mindset that the ways we see ourselves and the ways we see others don't or shouldn't have a bearing on our collective conscience. They do. Identity conversations have an important role in our discourse about moving society and institutions forward, including Whitworth University, particularly when they are handled with care and concern for the people for whom we're advocating and with whom we're communicating. They matter. But to what end? Why do we go about this important work? What ends does it serve? As people here this morning, many of us who see ourselves as Jesus Christ's image bearers in the world and all of whom love, or at least beginning to learn to love, Whitworth's Christ-centered mission, we must ask ourselves another set of questions as we engage this important work here and elsewhere. What are the eternal ends for these complex conversations that we're having? And what spiritual resources can we draw from to sustain us as we lean into conversations that will tax us, that will drain us, and whose perceived cost may drive us away from having them in the first place? The kinds of conversations we're talking about this morning are very difficult. But I think the discerning Christian might have another hurdle to overcome. How does the Christian reconcile the concept of unity in Christ, one that seems to elevate distinctions, or excuse me, one that eliminates distinctions, such as male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, with the more definitive elevation of identity that comes with the conversations I'm talking about? Doesn't the unity we share in Christ eliminate the need to draw distinctions of this world? The Christian asks. In Colossians, Paul reminds us that indeed our identities as Christians, the identity that supersedes all, is our identity in Christ. Compared to our identities in Christ, all of the ways we might describe ourselves to others, well, they fail in comparison. That's how powerful the label Christ follower is. But in addition to reminding us of our true identities, I think Paul is also pointing in Colossians and elsewhere to the reconciling work of Christ in the world. A reconciling work Christ so generously calls us to as well. To point only to the unity available in Christ without also acknowledging that the empowering byproduct of that unity is to do justice is a, distorted, is a distorted simplification of the gospel, in my opinion. 
And if one acknowledges that doing justice in the world imitates the work of Christ, then one must also acknowledge that there are injustices in the world. And that they may, and that there are many, and that they grieve the heart of, of God, and that they are inextricably linked to real and perceived labels that we construct for one another. Jesus, well, he didn't gloss over the fact that he was having dinner with a tax collector. He didn't ignore the plight of the Samaritan. Jesus acknowledged the pain and anguish of the woman who grabbed his cloak in a busy marketplace. And in acknowledging the humanity and worth of the very real human experiences that brought these people to Jesus' side, Jesus was able to clothe them in the identity that matters most. As beloved daughters and sons of God, one could not have come without the other. So then, unity in Christ is not an excuse to gloss over the ways we humans construct identities and experiences that often leave people out. But rather, our unity in Christ motivates us and propels us to do Christ's work in the world, recognizing that as Jesus demonstrated himself, the good work of salvation and reconciliation starts with the person, with the individual, with all of that person's embedded experience and perspective and beliefs, beliefs, all of which can contribute to their identity. Friends, these are not easy times. These are not easy times to be a college student. These are not easy times to lead conversations in classrooms, faculty. They're not easy times to lead institutions of higher learning. But we are called from our comfort zones to engage others who challenge our perspectives. We want to make others hear our story so that they can come alongside and make a difference for us and for others like us. At Whitworth, we engage in these difficult conversations on campus and as we interact with the broader community. Let's be known here at Whitworth as a people of peace and reconciliation, truth and grace, propelled by our identities as Christ followers, doing his good work of reconciliation on this campus and in this world. And with God's help and by his spirit, we can be a light to the world. May God bless you and your time of study this fall semester. Thank you.